Welcome to TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills. This is the TALC Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills, to get better outcomes, and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. My name is Avril Danchak and I'm with my colleague today, Mohan Kumar. Uh, he'll introduce himself in a bit more detail in a moment. This discussion is specifically directed towards anyone who's new to the NHS, perhaps, perhaps new to working in primary care if they've been used to working in hospitals, and also anyone who's new to the whole idea of learning consultation skills as a specific educational endeavour, because not everybody does that. So, for some people, thinking about consultation skills is kind of ingrained from the beginning, isn't it? It's something you do at medical school and so on. But for quite a lot of people, it's seen as a bit of an add-on, as like a, a nice to do, but not a must do. And one of the reasons we're talking today is to think about why it should be a must do, isn't it? So in this conversation, we're going to explore those consultation skills and why they matter clinically. And I think one really important way into that is for you to tell us a bit more about yourself, Mo, and how you came to this point yourself. Thank you, Avril. And I know we've done a few of these before. And when we were discussing this module and the themes around this, um, it was nice that I'm involved in having this conversation with you. Because as we were describing who this module is for, I was just reflecting on my own role when I first came into this country. And as you know, I graduated, did my medicine in South India. Um, I, I joined the surgical rotation. And then when I came into this country, I actually came to work in the emergency medicine and, and do a surgical rotation and then found my way into general practice. Um, and so, um, my, as you know, my name is Mohan Kumar. I'm an associate dean working with Health Education England. But in my previous incarnation as a surgical trainee coming into GP training, there was a whole lot of medicine to explore because the generalist medicine involves it. But even more importantly, there's a whole lot of skills which were completely new to me. And uh, consultation skills is one of them. Um, and uh, interestingly, my original job, um, my surgeon who, who was so interested in cutting, if I sat down in the post-operative ward and explained something to the patient, used to shout at me and ask me to come back to the cutting room. <laughs> so that could be the start of something. <laughs> Right, so he was more interested in the nuts and bolts of Absolutely. you, but you liked the patients. I like talking, talking to the patients. as yeah. you know. Okay. We're going to explore in a, in a bit more detail why that's not just fun, but it's actually clinically important. But I, I'd like to start off by picking up this idea about making a transition into different kinds of medical practice and even different health services. So what kinds of people do you think might be new to this whole idea of consultation skills education? Absolutely. I think in some medical and educational cultures, the doctor-patient communication skills is mentioned very superficially. Mm -hmm. It's not explored in depth as the nuances of consultation skills. Um, the other aspect is there is a tendency to think that the doctor knows it all and the patient just does what they are told to do. Mm -hmm. And both parties, both the clinicians and the patients can fall into this trap because they think, well, you just have to tell me what to do. I'm not really engaged in this. Um, and this can happen a lot in some of the medical and educational cultures. It can happen here, mm -hmm. but it also happens a lot more in other cultures. And I also think that somebody coming in where they are consulting in a language which is 
not their first language, so English is not their first language. So they may have consulted in Hindi or Tamil or Urdu or, or Spanish or whatever. So what happens is when you're converting that and communicating in a different language, which is not one of your own, some of the nuances and skills may get lost in it. The other bit is if you are working in a secondary care culture, like myself, I was doing this. And as a surgeon who was having these conversations, I discovered very earlier on the patients I spent five minutes with in the post-operative ward and explained what to expect from their wound or what it looks like tend to not turn up too many times to outpatients. And I had a little inkling that that was because of the conversation I had. Mm -hmm. But a lot of surgeons don't have that insight and may not always spend a lot of time because they're honing their surgical skills. Mm -hmm. They don't think the top and tail of consenting explanation is, is really that important. I might be generalising here, but it, it does happen. So I think you're hinting at two things there. There's people who've been in different environments, whether it's primary care, secondary care, in different countries even. But there's also something about a transition to a more generalist way of thinking, isn't there? Which is using generalist skills and capabilities to explore this individual patient. So it's knowing all your medicine, your surgery, your diseases, but being able to say, well, how does this apply to this specific person in front of me and what do I need to do to do that? And that's quite a complicated mental set of processes, isn't it? It is. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to kind of build into this as well, which you kind of hinted at, um, is the importance of personalising the care that we give to the individual. We all want personalised care when we're on the receiving end, and it might seem like that's a nice thing to have. But as we're going to show in this discussion, it's also clinically important. It's actually safer. Uh, it's more accurate. Um, things flow more easily, don't they? And, you know, you can get through your work in a different kind of way if you're doing this. And we're even going to talk a little bit about how it's better for the clinician as well. So there's, there's quite a lot to talk about here, I think, really. And every patient should be able to expect that the person looking after them cares for them as an individual, not just a number or a, another appendicitis or whatever it is. Absolutely. You mentioned two things there, which are, of, I think, worth reiterating. One is generalist medicine is not just a collection of multiple specialties. Mm. So it's not like you're a neurosurgeon one minute and an anesthesiologist and a surgeon. Generalist medicine looks at medicine completely differently. Mm. So I tend to think of the specialized bit is just that one tip of the pyramid, but there's a whole iceberg underneath around epidemiology, how early the diseases can present themselves to the clinician. So your skills need to be picking symptoms earlier on, which can mean 22 different things. Whereas by the time you go to a hospital or Poshmi, it may be narrowed down to one or two. Yeah. So even the art of diagnosing in general practice is different. And the second bit you mentioned is I tend to feel like personalized medicine as, you know, the, the, the it's safer and the acronym SAFER, mm. which we just came up with, mm. includes safety. And I think personalized care involving the patient, knowing about them is much safer mm -hmm. for a consultation. It's more accurate. Um, we know about the consultant in Canada who split her medical students up into two groups. One of them did the hospital-based clerking. The other ones did the GP consultation skills and narrative. And the second cohort consistently made a much more accurate diagnosis. It makes the consultation flow better because yeah. it's less instructive and more interactive. It's more efficient because I found that one question gives you six bits of information instead of six questions. And then finally, it keeps the consultations more 
exciting, interesting, and you're not boring talking yourself. So it's more <laughs> resilient. And I think what keeps clinicians engaged in this is that if you keep interested in the patients in front of you, you become more resilient in yourself. So absolutely, in all 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 those themes are important. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true actually. And that thing about getting the right information is really important, isn't it? Because generalists know how to get a lot of information using very concise styles of, of, of information gathering, not always even asking questions really, but with a very trained listening ear so that they make the most of the information they're hearing because mm. they're listening to it very, very carefully. And I think that thing about errors is very important because I think a lot of clinicians worry about making errors. That's In fact, right. most clinicians spend their whole life with a kind of voice on their shoulder saying, how's that going to play in the Daily Mail? What are you going to say to the GMC about that? What are you going to say in court if you do that? Sort of like, there's some more like this inner critic, isn't it? Mm. Saying, are you good enough? Is it safe enough? Have you got the right answer? Mm. And actually having the skills to help you do that is kind of reassuring, isn't it? Because it gives you a bigger platform. And it's really interesting. I mean, clinicians are looking at evidence base mm. all the time. So whether it's a rational or irrational fear, you look at the evidence and you look at the science behind it. So let's take the fear of litigation. If you're scientific, you'll go and look at the archives of how many doctors got litigated against and what was the reasons for getting, getting sued. And interestingly, if you look at the files in MDU or any of the defense organization, they'll tell you 90% of litigation is because you didn't develop a relationship with the patient, not because you made a scientific clinical error. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting bit because yeah. if you think, because I'm going to get sued, I'm going to ask questions like a computer mm -hmm. and not show the human side of it, you're more likely to get complained and litigated against. Like and that's the irony yeah. of that. Yeah, it is the irony. And, and I was going to come on to it later, but I think I'll come on to it now because I think it's very relevant. Um, in America, there's a big health organization called Kaiser Permanente. And they make all their clinicians do consultation skills training every year. And it costs them quite a lot of money. And the reason they do that is because they get less litigation afterwards. And so it saves them loads of money in, in suing people suing them. And it improves their patient satisfaction so they get more patients, so they get more money that way. Mm. And there's also a very interesting study of, of American obstetricians in one particular state mm. where they took two groups of obstetricians who had pretty much similar rates of cesarean section, uh, similar stillbirth rates, similar complication rates. So they seemed like pretty much the same sort of clinicians um, and then they looked at who was being litigated against and there was a group that had lots of litigation and there was another group who didn't have any or had very low rates of litigation and when you looked at them they, they they weren't making more mistakes in the high litigation group when they interviewed their patients they were saying things like oh she didn't really listen to what I said or um, when things started to go really wrong with my baby I, I couldn't get hold of him on the phone or whatever and in the low litigation rate, they were saying, oh, the situation was so uncertain, but Dr. So-and-so with me every step of the way, Dr. So-and-so explained everything very clearly. I knew that my baby might die, but Dr. So-and-so was so supportive throughout. And they didn't sue. And it was about those communication. And it's not just about being a nice person. It's about having the skills to communicate complicated and difficult things, including your baby might die, for example, in a way that still enables people to feel supported uh, and be able to ask questions and be able to go through that experience. I just wanted to pick out that last bit you said about Dr. So-and-so made me feel they were there. Mm. And I think something so insightful about building a relationship mm. is that you don't just hand over 
the care to them while you do a lot of that but they feel like you are there with them mm. and i always used to have these examples of a friday afternoon child with an abdominal pain consultation mm. where i used to tell the parents um let me know either way mm. there is one possibility where he's going to be running around asking for a mcdonald's on a sunday and he'll be fine because the symptoms are very mild but there's another possibility in a small proportion of cases it can progress to something which may need mm. you to take him to pediatric ane and the one thing which has always come back to me was i used to tell them let me know either way mm. on on monday morning so i'm interested to know not just say let me know if things go pear shaped mm. and the interesting thing was 9 out of 10 would ring me and say just tell dr kumar not to bother him that everything was fine mm. and then in that one case they'll say just tell dr kumar just like he predicted we have to take him to any yeah, yeah. and you feel like you're safety netting yeah. and that relationship shows that you're interested in their journey and you want to know what's happening with them and that helps because nobody kicked back and said how dare he send us home because i've taken him to hospital they always said yeah. you planned it as Abs- part absolutely of and i also you you learn you get you refine your judgment a bit more yeah, don't you right. because you go oh yeah that one went fine i thought it was going to go fine and it did go fine so i feel better and also it speaks to that key generalist skill which is about continuity and taking because the specialists interested in the disease but we're interested in the people aren't we and we'll carry on being interested in that person no matter what's wrong with them so this week they might have abdominal pain but in 6 months time they might have something else but we're still interested in them as a human being i just feel like i should make a product placement i've written to your book on managing uncertainty <laughs> in medicine because what i just described is one of the themes of how do you manage uncertainty yeah. is knowing as many of them who got better mm. as the ones who didn't get yeah. better is how you handle it yeah. so that's part of one of the yeah. themes in your book as well yeah. so oh well thank you for the plug um now i we could talk about this a lot and i think we're both convinced of the clinical benefits but i think a lot of colleagues are still a bit unsure about whether spending all this time working on your consultation skills is really time well spent and i'm thinking if you could comment on some of the problems that they're already meeting that this work would help them solve i mean we've talked a bit about their worrying about litigation but there are other problems that they have with their patients for example that perhaps this might make easier what what do you think about that there is a perception in in clinical world that the patients who come to you who describe their symptoms have an accuracy of history so the the whole concept of history taking and clocking assumes your patient knows how to describe this symptoms and we know in medicine that depending on how they feel patients may either exaggerate their symptoms they may play it completely down mm-hmm. they may keep some symptoms and not mention them to you until you ask about them in a certain way so even from the beginning of the art of diagnosis that to expect that somebody would give you the whole history just on a plate it just shows that not you're not really, like really getting it, it doesn't really work like that, that way no, um, no. and it doesn't matter whether it's in a hospital or patients or in primary care i very rarely see th- and you also get this interesting themes where people have access to a lot of medical information now so for example a patient may come into the room and say what are you going to do about my migraine mm. it's only when you reflect on consultation skills you're going to say let's talk about your headache <laughs> and then tell me a bit more, a bit yeah. more of a headache yeah, it might not be it may not be the migraine yeah. so there is a lot of these red herrings in, in even in the history taking the other problem it may deal with is um the we already mentioned litigation and the lack of engagement but even when there is no litigation involved if you take something like a long term condition 
it invites the the patient to come in almost in partnership with the doctor a doctor who thinks i can manage your diabetes sitting here in my chair is failing already because it involves lifestyle modification it involves activating them to engage in better eating better exercise and this can't happen with just diagnosing something it needs to art of negotiation it needs bringing them on board to taking some ownership of their condition as well that's important and i also find that that i've come up with um some symptoms may have such bizarre origins so for example i had somebody who's seen 10 doctors with sore throat and each one's looking at his throat and going nothing's wrong with you it looks okay it looks slightly pink take some this gargle this and there were two things he was worried about number one he he does used to do a little singing gig around christmas time and he thought his his job is going to be lost his earnings is yeah, gone yeah. but the second thing was nobody really asked him what he does for his other life and i was the first one to say what do you do and he said and have has anything changed in mm. your job and he this is a good consultation skill um, routine and he mentioned that oh he's just got a new job because he hadn't had a lot of gigs coming up and it's working in the freezer department in asda and and he said his throat has gone worse every time he's come back from a shift and i realized it was his reaction to the cold yeah. air which was hitting the back of the throat and that simple explanation helped him to avoid multiple consultations mm. so there are huge benefits to the consultation skills we are talking about and how to deploy them the kind of accuracy we mentioned already of clinical diagnosis but a lot of the diagnosis in primary care involves their jobs their lifestyles um it may be concerns from somebody else there's a whole range of that i'm sure there are many more you could well no i think i think you're absolutely right and i think the other point which you kind of alluded to but i just want to reiterate is that a lot of times clinicians feel oh patients don't take their tablets or patients don't lose weight when they're supposed to or they won't give up smoking um but that's that's part of what you can learn how to do better isn't it and and learn how to help people make the changes that they they need to make so it's frustrating if somebody say with COPD doesn't give up smoking because you know they're just going to get worse and worse and worse but if you can help in a way to talk with them in a different way about what how to do that there are skills involved in helping people to do that kind of transition aren't there I know if I may say something I know I'm a ex surgeon and I know that if anybody is there to blame mm. your patients for something going wrong you know you could be surgeons the one surgeons can be the one <laughs> but what I found really useful is the amazing thing that quite a lot of GPs and trainees sometimes say that I would be a fantastic doctor if my patient is well educated understands everything and follows all my instruction and i said if you could do all three you don't need a gp you could just have a dispensing machine yeah, yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. with advice yeah. i think what makes the job worthwhile is those little conversations you have yeah. which motivates them to follow a certain point of care because i think that's why it needs a human interface medicine because yes. you're not just dispensing drugs no. and giving sick notes and doing that you're having a conversation about how it's important for their you know why they got there and what to do to get out of there yeah well. i think that's very interesting because i think there's a perception that medicine's a bit like a recipe book isn't there that you've got these six symptoms which are like the ingredients yeah. so therefore you can get this out of it therefore the treatment's this like you can just read it off google or something but in fact all healthcare is very human isn't it? it you know whether it involves nursing or being a physio or a midwife or a doctor it always involves that human interaction mm. and i think that also comes into how we plan our care with our patients because it's not uncommon is it for somebody to say oh let's say i've been bleeding let's say i've got nosebleeds and and for them to say 
or to be thinking, that means I need an X-ray of my head to find out why I'm bleeding. Well, if you don't find that out, when you then send them to see an ENT surgeon, they, they probably don't understand why you, no. you're doing that. Whereas if you can say, well, I understand why you think we might need to do more tests, but actually an X-ray won't tell us why you're bleeding. That's true. Whereas if I ask an ENT surgeon to use a, a telescope and look into your nose directly, they'll be able to find out the cause and probably treat it there and then. So that's why we're not going to do an X-ray. Whereas if you don't have that conversation, people go in, they say, oh, that doctor didn't even send me for an X-ray. And they get very frustrated. And you hear, if you sit on the bus, you hear these kind of frustrations You do, and, and from my own extended family, quite a lot of my cousins and uncles and aunties live in mm. um, South India. And and it, it, it's bizarre, even there, where the, the concept was the clinician knows best and you're better off going to a specialist mm. is falling to pieces because people would start with a knee pain or, like you said, a sore throat or a headache, and they assume the orthopedic surgeon or the ENT surgeon or, or, the, or the neurosurgeon will be sorting it out. But because they don't have fully organized primary care, uh, the headache may be due to 20 different reasons. And that, that art of collecting information earlier and then focusing where you need to go yeah. is part of what we do as consultation skills as well. Yeah. And people are now hankering for that. And I used to get, when I when I go to somebody who's got bagfuls of results <laughs> and scans, they and then they have a five-minute conversation with me. I've not even lifted my finger or arranged a test. And they go, that was the most useful five minutes I've had in the last six months. And that shows why. I think that thing about really understanding what's the matter with you is really important uh, to engage in, in your treatment, isn't it, and your investigations. Um, I want to just very briefly, um, before we talk about a, a bit of bit, I'm going to talk a bit about the evidence behind mm. this. But I think one of the things that we're also going to talk about is when you make transitions from one place to another or one system of working to another, different places have different use of language, don't they? And I, I don't know if you can, because I know you're very interested in language and how people speak. And I think people use different language in hospitals, for example, than mm. they do outside mm. hospitals. Mm. How do you think that impacts on people's consultations? I think you, you, it's a very big topic, the, the, the art of language, but not just language, it's the use of um, specialised words or simple words. So it can work at many levels. So the, the earliest one we think about is, you know, English is not my first language. I used to speak Tamil, um, even though I did my medicine in English. When I came here, simple transitions like uh, when I did my PLAB exam, uh, there was a scenario where they said, I've been feeling really sick. And, and in India, feeling sick means feeling ill. And here, feeling sick means you feel nauseous. And those little nuances can, can make yeah. a big difference. There's a huge difference between how we use words and technical language in, in surgery or a different specialty mm. to the way we use it in a generalist medicine uh, format. There's also changes in regional dialect. Yes. Even I found that, you know, I, I, I came and did my exams from London, moved up north, and I came to Wigan. And, and then even when I first worked in A&E, and people say, I just kecked. And I'm thinking, what is a keck? I don't know. Mm. Um, and, and, but the other doctor who's, who was from Birmingham didn't know what, what it meant. And it apparently means going over your ankle. Oh, and right. then okay. feeling mazy and yeah. uh, feeling yeah. mithered. There's, There's a whole range. Yeah. Even yeah. within the country, yes. if you're moving from Liverpool to Manchester, you have to learn the dialect and the lingo. And there's a really useful website um, by, by, uh, by um, it's Cham Chambers, Robert Chambers, who's got a really useful website called Healthy English, oh, right. which actually talks about these all different, these different ways. Yeah. As well. Brilliant, I so, love it. 
Um, I'm going to finish really by by saying it's not. This is not just our opinion either, is it? It's not just that you and I think this is a good thing. There's actually really mountains of very hard scientific evidence that shows that if you have a better relationship with your patients, and particularly if you show empathy and compassion towards people, that this it doesn't just make them feel cuddly, it makes them get better quicker. And it's been shown to shorten intensive care unit stays, for example. It's been shown to speed up wound healing. Uh, it's been shown to reduce mortality in some, you know, the rates at which people actually die has been reduced in certain circumstances. Um, and so it's actually interesting that it has very hard outcomes that you can measure. People's blood pressure is lower mm-hmm. in blood pressure clinics. People's diabetic control is better, which we've talked about already. Um, and so I think that's the, the thing that really clinches it for me because I'm all in favour of having great relationships with patients, but I also really like it when they get better from their illnesses or, or manage their illnesses better. And there's really good evidence to show that. Absolutely. It? And I used to think... Um, there are scenarios in general practice where you patients come with the symptoms and you make a really good satisfying diagnosis or they're really happy you figured out what was wrong. And that there are other consultations where they may not come with a specific set of symptoms. They have just vague sense of unease and you figure it out that it's something to do with work, something to do with stress. And in our surgery, actually in most surgeries, the, the door to the to the consulting room is a magnetic door, so mm. it, it's got a very short, slow shutting pace. So I, I hear what's called corridor feedback, where as they walk out of the room, you could hear the sound of what they're saying. And it always used to amaze me how when you feel like you haven't done much but just spoken to them, mm. how rewarded they felt. And they used to go away thinking that was really useful, that conversation. I feel so much more reassured. I'm going to come back again in the future if I have anything wrong. And all these things, it shows how much the rapport and, and the reassurance the words can be as well. And, and I think... Um, as we mentioned already, the resilience of a practitioner is not just from making a set of uh, wonderful diagnoses, but also how many people found that your shared conversation and your interest in them uh, makes them feel so much more loyal and and, and rewarded. It's very rewarding, isn't it? And uh, I think I think that's absolutely right. And one of the interesting things to me as well is that those expressions of of empathy and concern which are very powerful, and all this research backs this up, actually people often say, oh, we haven't got time to do all that because we're really, really busy. But actually there's been some quite firm research to show that it takes about 30 to 45 seconds worth of consultation time to build enough of a relationship and to express appropriate empathy and concern for somebody, which is not very long. And that actually gives you measurable outcomes up to six months later, which I think is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Absolutely. So... Um, we could talk about this for a long time, I think, so I'm, I'm going to probably wrap up here. But to say that learning to use these skills more effectively and to be able to use them in a flexible way in different environments with different patients at different times actually pays off in so many different ways. It does. And I just wanted to finish maybe by saying, having taken that journey coming from South India, you go through a lot of phases and you think, I just have to learn this because I'm functioning in a different country. Mm. And you think, I just have to learn this to pass my exam. Mm. And then having done that and having got my MRCGP, you realize that you have to keep learning this, not just to pass the exam, to become a better clinician and a better human being. And the kind of feedback you get now from both your patients and your 
you use these skills in other spheres of life, whether it's in teaching or in meetings as well. So there's a lot to say about learning these skills. And like you said, we could be talking about that for, for a very long time, but I think we've covered quite I'm going to finish on a quote from you, actually, and it's particularly opposite because you started life as a surgeon, which is actually, you were saying if you talk to people, they feel better, but I'd say if you listen to people, they, you feel better. And so I'm going to conclude by reiterating that the ear is as mighty as the scalpel. Absolutely. And that's that's the power that we can unleash, isn't it? Thanks Thank very you. much, Mo. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.